Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Lore Watch, a roundtable for informed discussion about lore in the games of Blizzard Entertainment. I'm your host, Joe Perez, one of several lore-focused folks from Blizzard Watch. And I've got my wonderful co-host with me today, Matt Rossi. How are you doing today, Matt? Hi, there's things. Yay. Hi, everybody. <laughs> uh, so we're going to be doing a bunch of questions today, uh, as we do need to catch up on some of them. So thank you very much for those of you that sent those in. Uh, again, if you have questions for this podcast or the other podcast, feel free to send them into podcast at blizzardwatch.com. Uh, as well as on our Discord, we do have several channels. Uh, we do have our patron and Q supporters for specifically podcast and Q questions. Uh, and then we have a generic one for if you are not a patron supporter. We do look at both of those. Um, one thing I will do want to take a couple seconds to point out is uh, we did receive a uh, email over the last week uh, commenting on my pronunciation of Ardenweld. Um, I understand, and thank you very much. I understand that I don't take it with any sort of malice, but please understand that sometimes I will mispronounce words from time to time uh, as honestly having multiple languages in my head makes some of it a little bit difficult. Um, so thank you very much, and please bear with me if I do mispronounce something. Uh, so our first topic that we are going to discuss before we go into the questions, though, is going to be the lore reveals from the Shadowlands Collector's Edition art book. Uh, did you have a chance to go over that at all, Matt? I looked at them. And what did you think about what was what was shown there? A lot of people think that there is some interesting lore implications there. Should a lot of it's stuff people had already talked about, like the whole concept of if the if the uh, who the rune carver is. Or the you know the rune forger. Sorry, I keep forgetting which name they're using for him now. There was that they discussed that um, if it possibly connects to the Maldrax's story. Um, the whole idea that the it's interesting that we have a direct thing now that the jailer was imprisoned in the Maw for his many crimes, and we don't know what the crimes were exactly, but we know that they there were crimes, and he's now sent to the the, the Maw to be its jailer. So he's like the worst person there. That's interesting. 
Uh, we don't really know who he committed those crimes against. And we don't specifically know who decided he should be in the mall. Like, it's probably the first ones, but it doesn't actually say in the bits I've seen. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's interesting. There's a lot of interesting stuff here. Uh, I'm trying to, like, is there something in particular you want to talk well, about? Well, I guess let's let's go through at least some of the stuff that I think is one of the most interesting, the interesting bits to me. Um, and particularly the Ardenweld stuff. Uh, it's interesting that we always knew that Ardenweld was closely related to the Emerald Dream. We've been positing that for a long time. Uh, the they had said it. They they had, they'd said it multiple times. Yeah. Um, then they they confirmed it. Then we saw the uh, item the the short with Ursok, uh, and we saw all that stuff. Uh, as well as the things with the Loa. Basically, we we have an idea of what Ardenwald was. The interesting thing to me, though, is, and, and I was thinking about this, is I'm wondering what this might have to do with the Emerald Nightmare that we just cleared out. And the only reason I bring this up is because way, way long ago, when the Emerald Nightmare was still brand new and we were talking about it, uh, and yourself and me... Uh, or and I, we we talked about what was that tree that Ilganoth was in, and we had correlation to all these other trees, but we couldn't figure out which one this was. And we were like, "Well, you know, maybe it doesn't have an actual manifest uh, on Azeroth. Maybe it isn't on the material plane. Maybe it was the, the potential for one." And we went through a whole lot of different options for it. But the one thing that strikes me about this in particular is. What if Ilganoth was squatting in the reflection of the tree, the main central tree of Ardenweld, but in the Emerald Dream? Or, or Nightmare, as it were. Do we think that that's a possibility now? I don't know. Do we? I mean, you you clearly think it's a possibility. Well, you just brought it up. <laughs> I would assume that you think that. I, 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 I do. I do think that there's some correlation there because I've been. this is one of those mysteries that I haven't been able to really pinpoint or make good with. Um, I don't know that I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. I don't know another good option for what that tree represents, but if there is sort of this one-to-one correlation between the central tree of, of Ardenweld, uh, Ardenweld, excuse me, uh, and the Emerald dream, it would stand to reason that there should be a central tree or some like there, right? There should be some mirror of it there because they're supposed to be, uh, opposite blooms connected to the same tree. Uh, so maybe there's a thing there where that central tree, that corrupted stump, uh, was Ilganoth trying to worm his way through the dream. And maybe that was the task. The original task for Ilganoth was to break into the Shadowlands or to do something there. We, I, I think it's folly to think that the old gods don't know about the Shadowlands. I think they have some knowledge of it. Uh, so I'm wondering if there's something there. Or do you think I'm just completely off base? I don't think you're off base. I don't think that I have a real opinion on it yet because, like I said, it, this is relatively new information. Uh, I also think it's quite possible that the tree he was in was a tree that just no longer existed on Azeroth. Because the problem was that he didn't appear to be in... He wasn't in some random space that was similar to the to Ardenweald. He was in a, Angoro. The space that he was in was in a reflection of Ungoro. And so that complicates things because Ungoro is shaped by the Titans. Uh, it even had devices in it that kept influences from outside from entering 
the silicate had to burrow their way through them before they could actually get through. So that complicates things. But I, the, your idea isn't, it's not like something that I hear and immediately go, no, that's terrible. That's, that's wrong. I just don't know. I mean, it could, it could be, you know, that's, that's my response to that. It, it absolutely could be, but we'll find out. Uh, maybe we'll find out. Maybe they, the funny thing is, is if they hadn't thought of that now, they're like, Oh wow. Okay. <laughs> but you know, you never know. But, uh, yeah, I, I hadn't really thought a lot about it to be completely honest with you. I mean, well, they, they basically say one of the things they say in the book is that if the dream is the personification of life in the waxing stage, Arden wield is life when it is waning. Uh, which means basically the whole fact that she's like, you know, the winter queen that's very much based around the sealy unsealy idea. So we'll, we'll see more as we get it through. I'm, a, I'm actually more interested in the fact that Maldraxxus was apparently created by the first ones. Well, and they, to, to, to defend the Shadowlands from external threats from the beginning, the first ones who mm -hmm. shaped the cosmos knew they needed to protect the Shadowlands from external threats and beyond. Maldraxxus was their answer. Like, from the beginning, as you're making the universe, you're like, oh, but people are going to attack this. We definitely, it's like, why? Like, you know, it, it kind of, it says some interesting things about the cosmology in that the, clearly the first ones believed there were threats outside of their purview. And it makes me wonder, like, if the first ones are to our reality, what the Void Lords are to theirs, if there's like, you know, there's variant alternate entities from other where from other planes of existence that are the threats to every other plane of existence. And we're definitely seeing that set up with the whole, uh, Oh, bloody heck. I can't remember the name of that damn book. Talk Joe. I, I can't remember the name <laughs> of the book. Come on. I, I don't remember the name of the book either. I don't know what you're referencing. The whole thing about the cosmology and the, in, in Oh, Chronicles. The, no, the tower of the unseen guests and the possible. Oh, the, the journal. Yeah. The journal, uh, the, uh, Oh, bloody heck. Yeah. Uh, but the enemy infiltrators, it was the, yeah. so if, if there is like, if the forces of death are infiltrating in every other faction on the cosmology chart, it stands to reason that every other faction on the cosmology chart is infiltrating them or trying to. And so that's an interesting concept that the first ones, whoever they were understood from the beginning that they were not omnipotent, that they had to create defenses they couldn't just, you know, will things from attack not to not attack their creations. And it's really interesting to me, like what what is the relationship of these beings to the Titans or this quote unquote pantheon of death? Uh, which we haven't seen a lot of actually in game stuff, you'll note. The term Pantheon of Death came out of Eon Hazacostas when he was doing an interview. They haven't used it in game that I've seen. Yeah, I don't think I've seen that either. So I think we may need to get away from that. I think it's more just a, a handy tool to hang onto the idea that these are very powerful entities. And it's less that they're not actually a quote unquote pantheon. They're not, they're not like an organized group in the way that we think of when we think of a pantheon of deities, like the Titans for all their flaws were definitely an organized group. The pantheon that we saw of the Titans United was an purpose, organized group. Right. Yeah. Or even, or, were at one point because Sargeras clearly sure. fell, but they were organized in points. These guys definitely don't feel that way. So that's interesting to me. The other interesting thing I think that came out of this was the, the Bolvar framing devices. Uh, so basically the idea that, uh, hold up the, one second. Go ahead. Before you talk about that, I do want to give people 
a spoiler warning. I know we already did one, but for this, I want there to be another one, just so absolutely everyone is clear here. There's some pretty big implications of what Joe's about to tell you. Uh, yes. So I want you to be warned. Yep. Okay, you, they've been warned. Go ahead. <laughs> they have been warned. Uh, there are The book opens and closes. This is the, the Special Collector's Art Book with quotes from Bolvar. Um, which I think is really interesting because it has implications to the jailer at the helm of domination. Uh, and some of the things that we've been talking about uh, in the past several weeks, uh, death was not the end. I believed it to be no rest or joyous reunions in the light awaited me. What I witnessed challenged all I knew with my final breath. I saw impossible places, worlds within worlds brimming with beings that defied description. It wasn't until the helm of domination was placed upon my head that I understood the truth I had seen. Death is not an end, but a beginning. Uh, and then the ending quote is, Now you have seen as I have, sights never meant for living eyes. But this knowledge will not save you. Nothing can stop what Sylvanas set into motion. Rending the veil was just the beginning. Beyond the ruined sky awaits an evil older than reality itself. The jailer has been amassing power within his maw, and soon his patience shall be rewarded. Everything we sacrifice to save Azeroth will have been in vain. The only key to saving our world lies within the realm of death. Suffer well. Now, the interesting things here, too, is the first quote is attributed to the Lich King. The second quote is attributed to Bolvar Fordragon, which I think is an interesting touch, and I don't think that's a mistake. Uh, I think this is before oh, and I after. Think it's pretty, yeah, I was going to say, it's pretty obviously before and after the... Sylvanas' actions. Yeah. So what do you what do you think of those two quotes, Matt? Well, for one, it always it goes along with my idea that Bolvar was planning for this the whole time. Yeah, I would agree. And uh so there's that. I also think we have to actually mention something else. Okay. There's a bit later on he would send the Valky those Valkyr to, to serve as her tethers to mortality. A pact needed to be made. Only then could she return beyond the veil. Only then will the Banshee Queen claim the crown of the False King. That's about the the deal between Sylvanas and the Jailer. And Which basically, what we're finding out, they mentioned it a couple other times. There's another line here. The veil within realms wanes. The helm of domination was crafted to be our way forward. Instead, the one seared by the flames of life uses it to keep us at bay. So for the years that we were basically playing around and doing other stuff after Wrath, Bolvar has been sitting up there learning how to use the Helm of Domination to see into the Shadowlands to prevent exactly what just happened. There's there's also an interesting implication with it as well that they mentioned throughout this as, as well, is that the Jailer want wanted the Helm of Domination to be broken, to, and it was absolutely a part of him. And the fact is, the Lich Kings have all resisted him in some capacity, which I think is really interesting and speaks to the strength of character, uh, regardless of whether or not you like them or hate them. But of Ner'zhul, of Arthas, and of Bolvar, they didn't I'd become his pawns. I'd say strength of will. Strength of will, sure, yes. Because you can have a terrible character, but be strong-willed. Um, Fair enough. Arthas was extremely strong-willed, but... You know, you, I wouldn't call him somebody, you know, you know, th this proves character. No, he, he's terrible. But I mean, the, the thing is, is we, I don't know if it says anything about 
the the helm of domination being part of him. That well, part of his seen. plans, at least. Yeah, part of his plans. I, that much we can see. Uh, the idea is that but, Sylvanas was raised after she threw herself off uh, Ice Crown Citadel. The reason that the Valkyr came to her, the Valkyr that came to make the deal, weren't loyal to the Lich King. They were loyal to the Jailer. And their whole bit, everything they did, they did to to get Sylvanas effectively the past from the end of Wrath until the the beginning cutscene of Shadowlands has been Sylvanas doing a training montage, like getting stronger. The whole war between the Alliance and the Horde that caused death on a mass scale all over Azeroth was directly to empower her so that when she went up to Ice Crown, she could get the helm and break it. And that's why they sent her back in the first place. So that would probably be involved in what her deal with Helia was, because obviously Helia is currently in charge of the Mossworn Kyrian. And the the Valkyr obviously work for her. I definitely think that's going to be revealed to be part of it. We haven't. There's nothing in particular we've actually seen about that yet, but it makes sense. It works with what we know, and everything that that Sylvanas has been doing up to this point was to trigger this event. And now that she has triggered it, the thing that the Lich King was trying to stop, the thing that all Lich Kings have been trying to stop. I mean, Arthas didn't want this guy coming through and conquering anything either. Whether or not Arthas knew about it is an open question. But I think it's interesting to note that it, the Helm of Domination was linked enough in the Jailer that there was some influence there. There was some influence stemming from the Jailer into the Helm that potentially well, had a Well, again, where does influence. it actually say that? It doesn't actually say that. What it says is the Helm of Domination was crafted to be our way forwards. Instead, the one seared by the Flames of Life used it, uses it to keep us at bay. It doesn't say, I'm controlling them. There's nothing in it that actually says that. It's just that the helm was intended to be used a certain way, and it wasn't. We don't know how they knew not to use it that way. Finally, towards the end of the book, we learn the truth about the helm of domination. The crown is the key to Joe's plan to gain forward as Bolvar, the one sacred flames away, resisted the power inside the helm. Yes, uh, but again, we don't know specifically what fair. that means. We don't know if it means that, the, that there's a will that was telling him what to do, or if the power of the helmet just wanted to be released. I mean, he might've just been sitting there holding the thing together. I, we don't know yet. I think there's a lot of possibilities here. We just have to be careful. Sure. Um, And that's, and that's fair, but there's, there is a lot of, I definitely think that there's, it's very interesting. Um, Do you want to talk about the rune, the rune carver? I keep calling the rune carver. It's a rune forger. You want to talk about the rune rune forger theory that people have, or do you think that's too out there? Uh, I don't know if it's too out there because it seems to be perfectly in line. Uh, so one of the things we see is the Runeforger, a mysterious character in Torghast who has lost his memories but uses his ancient knowledge to craft Shadowlands legendaries. Uh, so one of the things that's been going around the community is that, the uh, as a fan theory, is that the Runeforger is actually the Primus, the former ruler of Maldraxxus and Master Technician. Uh, now, there are some things that potentially support this. As you go through Maldraxxus, one of the things you do uh, is you uncover some of his left behind uh, messages or memories or whatever you want to call them. Uh, They're distinctly targeted at you and they revolve around the idea of crafting a rune blade uh, and the method of it as well. And as you interact with NPCs in uh, Maldraxxus, you learn that he was the finest runesmith. Uh, The Primus taught all of the current rune carvers 
how to do what they do. Even when you take the blade to who is, quote-unquote, the premier rune carver of, of Maldraxxus, the armorer, I can't remember what his actual name is, but there's an NPC that even says, he's like, I'll do my best. Everything I learned, I learned from the Primus, but he was still leagues ahead of me. Uh, so now you have this caption in the book underneath the uh, the rune forger, Souls damned to the moth suffer with an end. They are twisted until only a mere shade of their former glory remains. It is then that the tormenting willingly serve their master. Uh, and then we go to the next one, which is what is known as rumor, or is rumor, and the rumor is a nightmare. His soldiers are the very worst of the damn they offer and eternally loyal to the very hand that broke them. But the idea is that the Primus may have gone into the maw to confront the jailer. At I mean, least it would make part sense. The, the Primus was the f- f- premier warrior of Maldraxxus. If he couldn't stop the jailer, very few people had a chance. Right. So and it so makes goes, sense that he might have tried it. And if he got lost in Torghast, it, it's. And, and I haven't unlocked the Rune Forger in Torghast, so I don't know what the whole quest chain that leads up to it is um, quite yet. So it's one of those things where. Do we find him in just a little place toiling away? Is he under duress? Uh, or is it something where he was just been in Torghast long enough that pieces of him have sort of been pulled away? We know that that is something that does happen in the Shadowlands, maybe not necessarily everywhere, uh, but at least, you know, in Bastion, memories are, are cleansed from a person uh, as they become, they go through their process. And we know that in the Maw, what makes you you is flensed away, essentially. Like, it is just stripped from you until you are broken and bloodied and and until you essentially say, okay, well, I'm going to join my captors now because, well, that's Sometimes what I think is best. When they say they are twisted until only a mere shade of their former glory remains, that's interesting because in some cases, they're literally like conglomerates of multiple mm-hmm. spirits jammed together into one being mm-hmm. they're and they are sometimes basically hammered out onto an anvil and turned into like constructs so yeah i think it's very, it's possible that this is the case i don't know if it is but it would be interesting if it was it's interesting to me too that it wasn't it wasn't forsworn kyrian that served sylvanas they were valkyr so from the beginning like the whole thing about having valkyr serve him might have been a problem for the Lich King. Mm-hmm. Or they might have realized that we want, you know, we're going to go work, you know, we're going to switch paymasters to the guy who's a, several bay grades above. So there's interesting stuff here. But it also makes sense that even if the Lich King was creating Valkyr, right, even if he knew how to do it, if that entity was creating them, they are essentially farriers of the dead. They can walk between those realms at some point, one would assume that there's got to be a point of contact, uh, especially with if if Helia, well, we know, if we know Helia's in the mix. Yeah, well, we also know that Muizala claims that he's the one that gave Odin the information to do it in the first place. But we always knew he had to get it from somewhere. Like, you know, where did it? Okay, Muizala's the one who gave Odin the information. How did Muizala know how to do it? If the jailer was the source of that information, how did the jailer get it? We don't know. That's what we keep coming back to is what did the jailer do? We know that he's claimed to have been exiled from Azeroth. That's the interesting thing. He's exiled from this reality. He's not exiled from any of the Shadowlands. So they what put him was in he? the maw. Yeah. What was he? What did he do? That's fascinating to me. We know he has a real name. Like there's an actual name to the jailer. I, f- I forget what it is, but I know it exists. 
Yeah, I don't remember what it is off the top of my head either. But the interesting well, That's thing why to... you need to talk for a bit so I can go look it up. Zoval. Zoval, yep. Yeah, so we... That name doesn't really mean anything right now. It might turn into something later. But I think the most interesting thing to me about this whole this whole everything is how much story is being revealed via an art book. It's not something we traditionally see. Um, art books are... Uh, kind of unique... used to be, actually. If you go back to the Cataclysm one... Uh, or the the Burning Crusade one, there actually was a lot of stuff in those books. There was that did much the same kind of thing. It's just we haven't had we didn't have one at all for uh, Battle for Azeroth and the Legion one, which I've got. The Legion one is just pictures. The yes. Legion one doesn't do a lot of story, but they used to do this quite frequently. So it's kind of a return to form. But I, I think in general, art books are not exactly. I'm not just saying Blizzard, but in general, are not exactly known for giving a whole bunch of story. But I find this very, very fascinating because it's not. It's not design notes, right? It's not. Here's what we thought of while we were making this. It's not. Here's where this art came from. So much there's. I believe there's going to be some of that in there, obviously. But I like the fact that we're again, like you said, returning to form. We're getting some information because I think story and art tend to go together quite often uh it informs design and sometimes design feeds back into story and seeing those two presented like that is a good thing um but needless to say there's a lot of interesting tidbits here and we could probably do an entire episode of just these little sections uh but is there anything else of import that you want to bring up or mention before we start moving on to some of our questions I mean, there's a lot of stuff we could talk about, but I mean, the questions might answer that or it might come up in this question. So we always move on to those. Yeah. So we're going to go back to one that we talked about last time that uh, we uh, we said it was a pretty good one and it's a long one, but I'm going to go ahead and read it out here. Uh, Hello, Splendiferous Blizzard Watchers. I have two theories with regards to what is going on in the mall. First is drawing from an idea you two discussed a while back, way back about Blizzard possibly bringing its universe together. It is one of the uh, one out of a very large number of chance of happening, but it's a fun idea to think about. The idea is simple. Malthiel from Diablo 3 is the reason the Maw exists. He's drawing evil souls to him because he wants to reap them away. The more evil they are, the greater the pull he has on them. The Jailer in this scenario is more of a guy who's trying to make sure Malthiel doesn't escape because the first ones realized he was an incredibly bad threat and put him there. Malthiel is going to escape now and the Jailer is in the endgame mode uh, trying to make sure that doesn't happen. Second theory is based on something I heard in an earlier podcast that the Shadowlands' purpose is to help facilitate reincarnation or the recycling of souls. So I went with that. Some reincarnation myths have it so that when you die you are followed you, and you followed your calling in life, you get an upgrade to your reincarnated self when the world is remade. What if there are states of existence in the World of Warcraft universe where there is a metaphysical apartment complex where each floor is a reality of its own? The lower floors are more run down and off of the live-in, while the top floors are well-maintained and a nice place to live. When you die, you could be reincarnated into the same floor or go up or down a floor. The Maw is where you get flushed down a floor for being a baddie. It's Azeroth, but worse. We haven't seen the anti-maw yet. This could be because there is no anti-maw because we are at the top floor or there is one and we haven't seen it yet. This theory made me think of a couple of questions. Like I said, this is a long one. What if there is a rat or some other thing crawling up into our reality through the maw? Does the jailer need to get an exterminator or a plunger? 
Could our floor implode with a lack of souls to inhabit it because Sylvanas clogged the great toilet of the afterlife? Is there a way for souls to ascend outside of joining a covenant in their afterlife? Infinite Dragonflight. Do they have ties to or are they just merely affecting the Shadowlands? Could the Maw having uh, having issues be more a symptom of our timeline becoming the lesser timeline? We are supposed to be the top floor of our apartment complex, but the timeway meddling could be starting to make the main timeline become secondary and thus sinking our metaphysical floor. One final unrelated note. Why did the bronze dragon help the horde bring the Makar into our timeline? Shouldn't that be the first question on the FAQ of the Caverns of Time? Question. Can I bring an army from an alternate history to my timeline to destroy my enemies? Answer. No. I ask this because if there is an FAQ, uh, he would be high enough rank to have it contributed to. Uh, thank you so much and have a good week. Necrosis from Chorus uh, Raws. There's a lot there. Well, I, think, I think first up, and it's not your fault, but we've learned just from this art book that the jailer is not like just some guy who's trying to keep everybody stuck in the mall who's supposed to be there. He's the first prisoner. He is not sitting around trying to keep stuff going. He's trying to break it. He's been trying to break it his entire existence. So any scenario where the jailer is trying to stop somebody else from getting out, no, he's the one trying to break it. He is somebody who's been put into a trap and he's willing to chew off your own arm to escape. Like every new person who gets put in, he immediately grabs onto them and uses them in his schemes. He is evil incarnate. They are not messing around with this guy. They're not trying to make him relatable or understandable. Even if they do give him motivations that make sense, those motivations are in the service of pure selfishness and pure evil. Whatever he did, he caused the first ones to damn him to the maw. So yeah, I don't, I don't buy any scenario where somebody else is doing bad stuff and the jailer is trying to stop it. No, the jailer, if somebody else was doing something bad, like if Malthiel from Diablo three was somehow involved in this, the jailer would absolutely be down for whatever he was doing. Cause it would make things worse. And that's yeah. what he wants. He wants to make things worse. He wants to get out. He wants to get his hands on Azeroth's spirit. He wants to conquer the realm of the living. He apparently always has wanted that. So yeah, n nothing where, no scenario where he's somehow not the reason all stuff is going bad here. He absolutely is. There might be something else just as bad, but he is bad. So also, that's my first reaction. Also along that same line, uh, Blizzard has been very adamant about keeping their IPs distance from each other in anything that is not uh, Heroes of the Storm. Uh, as much as some of it would be cool to find out that you know, the it's lands, fun to speculate. It's but... fun to speculate, but it's not very likely. I think years and years and years and years ago, when like Diablo and Warcraft three were like they those were games, there was this theory that they existed in the same universe. But as both games grew, they're very clearly their own things, and they they work very hard to keep them separated, aside from maybe a nod here or there uh, in each game to the other one, which are more yeah, Easter eggy like, than anything like Warts like Third Leg or Thunder Fury being in in Diablo three. Yeah. So it's not and, meant to, it's not meant to imply that the two games are in the same place. Yeah, not not that it's a bad idea. It's just something that they've been very vocal about not doing. Um, the second one about the idea of having a reincarnation process that elevates you or or sends you down the to the ubulet. 
maybe. The problem is we don't know enough about how death and rebirth really truly work outside of vague notions that we have about it from Ardenweld. And there's one, yeah, it's Ardenweld is the one that does that to the point where the, the, uh, I want to say throws, but that's not what they're called. The Drust. The Drust are invading Ardenweald to seize control of its process and get themselves reincarnated. So it's not happening in Bastion. It's not happening in Maldraxxus. It's not happening in Revendreth. It's specifically Ardenweald because Ardenweald is connected to the Emerald Dream. It's kind of like that whole idea that we saw in, in Battle for Azeroth of all places, so we got to keep it in mind. The Druidic arts touch on life and death. They touch on because life and death are a cycle. You can't have life without death. Death feeds life. And obviously, if you, there's nothing alive, nothing can die. The two are interconnected. They're, they're, so Ardenweald and the Emerald Dream are interconnected. And as a result, there's a kind of pipeline between the two due to that interconnection. That's not the case for, for the other Shadowlands. So I don't think that the Maw is part of that. The Maw is not a place... It's not there to facilitate reincarnation. The Maw is, it's from what we've seen from the art book in particular, the Maw is a place that was made because they had something that had to be put in it. And that something is the jailer. The jailer was so bad that they needed to stick him somewhere. Like it, It's actually really, like, I'm going to read this, the text, because I don't think we read it. I don't, maybe you did read this. If you did, I apologize, Joe. Uh, in the deepest depths of the Shadowlands lies the inescapable Maw. The souls imprisoned in this hopeless realm are the unforgiven and irredeemable, but even their crimes cannot compare to those of the jailer of their jailer. And so it was decreed that he would be condemned to the Maw, where he would forever be its jailer. Like that's that's him. That's the the entire deal with the with the jailer. That's what he is. So yeah, I don't think that there's anything to do with reincarnation in it. It's not you're not supposed to leave the Maw. That's that's what interests me about it. We've been talking about this a while. I find myself wondering how many people ever really went there. I mean, the cosmos is vast. If if a tiny, 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 tiny fraction of souls went to the Maw, that would still be a lot of souls just because the cosmos is an enormous place. Yeah, and we talked about it before. Like, we don't even have any any confirmation that that's where souls were supposed to even wind up going at any point in time. Like... The, we don't know that it when they say that it was their jailer yes that could be an implication that it was meant to be a prison for the worst of the worst of the worst but then we look at what's going on with the venthyr and we look at what's going on in revendreth and there are some truly repugnant souls that remain there and there's nothing that really says that they should be condemned to them all all we know is that the Chamberlain, in the only scene we see, which we know is corrupted, we know is in Sire Denothrius's sort of pay or or whatever direct influence as being upper upper crest, is saying that we will damn the the souls to the maw if they're found unworthy. But there's nothing that says that that's what originally they were supposed to be doing. And in fact, everything we see is that when we talk with the, the rebels, when we talk with the people that are actually fighting against it, it's saying there's, they're telling us that everything that's happened in Revendreth is a perversion from what the original purpose was. So yeah, if, it's possible, it's possible that there's, there were like a very small fraction of people who were sent to the mall from Revendreth. It's possible that people from Revendreth have been actually hoarding souls that should have gone to the mall. 
Like, we don't know. We have no idea. We don't know what's mm-hmm. going on with what Denathrius's plans are. If Denathrius is, is keeping souls out of the Maw, that would be something that the Jailer would not approve of because the Jailer wants to use those souls himself. But maybe he would go along with it if it meant keeping Denathrius on in you know in check. I don't know. I really that's there's a lot to this we don't know. But what we do know is there doesn't seem to be any connection to to return for some of these realms. Like the, the Bastion, you're not supposed to come back from Bastion. You're supposed to if you're if you're the right kind of person, you would choose Bastion and you'd be purged of your previous life and you'd become a servant you'd become one of the carrion and if you fail they just keep letting you try like they don't seem to like it doesn't seem like bastion has a mechanic a mechanism for what to do for people who aren't making it and that's why we get the for the the, the fell the force one in the first place because there's people who are failing and there's nothing in the in bastion to help them they just you're just gonna keep going through it until you finally forget everything you once held dear and that's it and uh maldraxxus Maldraxxus is not about returning from anything. Maldraxxus is about defending the Shadowlands. Yeah, you go there, you're you're pressed into service. You are there to fight. You are there because the Shadowlands needs defense. That's what that Maldraxxus was created to do. Um, it's kind of like a and even version of Valhalla, where instead of eternal glory, you just get to keep fighting forever to defend it. And the interesting thing about that, too, is there are quests, if you choose Maldraxxus as your covenant, uh, and this is a mild, mild spoiler, but one of the things you do is you're resurrecting broken spirits, spirits that have fallen in combat inside of Maldraxxus. So there's this thing where even if you're not worthy enough to survive, even if you're not the strongest of the strong, as far as spirits go inside of Maldraxxus, you still remain there. You're not sent somewhere else. Uh, your bones, your uh, metaphysical, whatever manifestation remains on the ground there to either be called upon or feasted upon or or whatever later. And I find that really, really interesting uh, because that has some implications to it as well. So like, that means that if everything is working the way it should be, if the decision is made that you go to Maldraxxus, that's it. There is nothing else for you. And I find that fascinating it doesn't definitely seem like one of the things it says in the books in the book is that if, if it weren't for the Arbiter souls would be lost, but it doesn't say they'd go straight to the Maw. It actually says if, if not for the presence of the Arbiter, by every joy and sorrow, the Arbiter judges all mortal souls and sets them on their intended path. Without her guidance, these souls would forever lost within the infinite realms of the Shadowlands. Doesn't say they'd be lost in the Maw. It says they'd be lost within the infinite realms of the Shadowlands. So it's pretty clear that this is actually a two-stage plan. Not just they haven't just incapacitated the Arbiter; they've hijacked all the souls. They wouldn't naturally go to the Maw without the Arbiter. They should be right now. Souls should just be lost. They should just be you know going off to random realms in the Shadowlands without reason. But that's not what's happening. So that interests me. It also implies that there's there's literally infinite realms in the Shadowlands. We're seeing five. There's a lot more than five. Yeah, and I mean, and I've I've mentioned this before. If you go to Oribus and you just look in the sky, you see an infinite sea of doors, uh, and they are doors because that is exactly what you call down to go to these four realms. Uh, so it seems like there is this an infinite number. Uh, just like Monsters, Inc., uh, where there's a different ton of different homes you can go to. There's a ton of different realms you can go to, and we have no idea how many there are. Uh, it's entirely possible that there's a 
quite factually an infinite number of them spanning all different possibilities of reality uh, throughout the existence. We don't know. And that's also fascinating and, and cool from a gameplay mechanic because they can literally introduce anything they want at any point in time. Uh, but it's the implications is that the universe is far grander than we even think it is. And we've already been thinking that it's been pretty big for a bit now. Um, I guess the final part of this, though, uh, yeah, if there was a, an FAQ for onboarding for the Bronze Dragon flight, uh, I figure that can I bring an alternate ar- an alternate reality army into the prime timeline? Probably would be a no. But Bronze Dragons are going to do what Bronze Dragons are going to do. <laughs> uh, anything else to add to that one before we move on to our next one? Not really. I mean, there's more I could say about the whole uh, Maghar thing, but I think we kind of touched on it last week. We did, uh, which does is interesting because there is a, another question here from Lord Soth, uh, which does deal with the Magar. Uh, so I was running the eye trying to farm Ashes of Alar, and I noticed one of the food items I was picking up was Magar grain bread. Does the title Magar apply to both Outland Orcs and Orcs from Warlords of Draenor? I'm a little confused by this, especially since you guys have talked a lot about the Magar storyline being connected with Urel from Alternate Draenor. I'm not overly familiar with BC lore, having not actually started playing WoW until Wrath. Thanks for all you do. Uh, there's actually a really, really easy answer to that, uh, which is the word Magar literally is orcish for uncorrupted. Um, so when you go to Outland and you find the uncorrupted settlement of orcs in Nagrand, that's them. So as you go other places, you are finding uncorrupted grain bread. Uh, you're finding things that are not tainted with blood or fell or anything else. And that's all it means. Uh, so when they, I, uh, that's why I thought it was always interesting when our, our race that we decided to bring over for allied races from the alternate timeline to here was referred to as Maghar because they weren't corrupted to begin with. Yeah, but there were corrupted orcs. Remember, the, there's the fell horde on that reality. There was the fell I mean, horde on that reality. Maghar would be the ones who refused to join it, and that's pretty much what the Maghar are from our outland as well. The, the Maghar, as Joe's told, pointed out, they're the uncorrupted. Basically, in both cases, the reason the Maghar word exists is because rather than staying locked to their clan, they're sort of joining as a larger group. The ones that jo- the thing is, we've actually got two groups of Maghar in the current horde, because Thrall recruited the Maghar of Draenor of, of Outland during the Burning Crusade, and they joined the horde, and many of them came over. So we've actually got Maghar from Outland and Maghar from Alternate Draenor in the horde right now, and and, and the two are somewhat similar in terms of what they are that they're a faction com- composed of uncorrupted orcs from different clans. Uh, the Maghar from alternate Draenor preserve more of their clan structure because they weren't constantly in danger of being destroyed by, you know, the Fel Horde for 30 years. Whereas the ones on, on Outland were, they had to hide. Um, if you, when you playing as a Horde player and you go to, um, I want to say Hellfire um, Peninsula, you first meet the Maghar and they're like, you know, why should we deal with you? Why should we trust you? And you have to prove to them that you're trustworthy. Meanwhile, the Alliance find like they find that the Maghar refused to kill a Draenei who tried to make contact with them. And then he got killed by corrupted orcs, but you've already gone into the Maghar settlement and murdered a bunch of them at the behest of uh, 
the brother of the guy who got killed and not the brother um just one of the people his brother was actually please don't don't kill anybody but it's too late you already did it by the time he tells you but it's interesting to see that the way that works um the maghar from outland are a lot less they preserve a lot less of their culture because they've spent like 30s 40 years just hiding trying to avoid being destroyed the only real enclave of them is the one in Nagrand, where we, which is where we first meet Garash. Garash is a Maghar. He's he's a leader of the Maghar. When you meet Garash Hellscream, he's de- morose and depressed, but he's a leader of the Maghar of of Outland. So yeah, Garash was a Maghar. That's why he's got brown skin because mm-hmm. he never was never exposed to fell. That's basically what Maghar means. We didn't we didn't drink the Kool Aid. Yeah, quite literally. So hopefully that answers your question. Our next question comes from Tetsemi. Question for Lorewatch. With the discussion of how the Forsaken are tied to death, much like the living are tied to life, do you think we explore anything regarding Kaliamenethil and how the light fits into the connection death and the Forsaken soul are tied together? Would you like to see light-forged undead as a faction identity rivalry like the three dwarf clans have? I... I don't know. I think it's an interesting complication, and I think it has some interesting possibilities for the future of the Forsaken, and it might potentially be something that helps solve one of the biggest problems the Forsaken have now, particularly with Sylvanas going the way she's going. Don't forget, like, one of the chief problems of the Forsaken is that they can't reproduce. They are the only civilization on Azeroth that does not have a means to procreate outside of Valkyr or, or necromancy. And with the Valkyr serving the Maw and the Jailer or Helia or however that works out as, as the threads go, now that Sylvanas is gone, what does that mean for the future of the Forsaken? Kalia might be the beginning of the answer to that. If there's something that they can do that resurrects these fallen warriors or souls and giving them a choice to uh, fight on with the combination of, of light and necromancy, the basically life and death, you know, fueling them, then maybe that's how they move forward. Maybe that becomes the blueprint. Um, Maybe that means that we won't get any more of the super uber decayed Forsaken, which has already been starting to dwindle as character models have been updated. Maybe that becomes the justification. But I think more than Light Forged Undead, we're going to see a new type of Forsaken emerge from this. I don't think they'll be Light Forged. Um, but it could be interesting for storytelling purposes as to maybe there's going to be some tension there. Maybe there's going to be some, you know, well, I was raised right after the third war and now I have like this body that doesn't do me any good, but I can't accept the light because, well, that's how it goes. Don't know. But I am really, really curious to see what happens, uh, especially because Shadowlands being a thing and everything that happens there that the fallout from that is going to absolutely directly impact the Forsaken as a race on Azeroth. What do you think, Matt? Things die. The Forsaken are dead, and it's time for them to stop existing. They are a mockery of life. They shouldn't be here. There shouldn't be any way to continue them as a species. The Desolate Council was right. They die. 
it's time to be dead. I'm not saying, you know, butcher them all. I'm saying if they can't reproduce, that's fine. You keep going till you fall apart and that's it. And there's no more of them and there shouldn't be any more of them. If Kalia goes around making more of them, Kalia should be put down. It's time to accept that the Forsaken shouldn't exist. That they themselves have been saying it. It was Sylvanas who refused to accept this. But Sylvanas isn't everybody. And it's time to at least see that somebody on the Forsaken side, somebody of prominence coming up and saying, no, we don't need to be, there doesn't need to be more of us. Like, you, what are you, insane? No, things die. And then that's what happens to them. They're dead. Clearly, when you die, there's an entire other world to go to. So it's not even a problem. Just let it go. I think that that's at least... I'm not saying that they should get rid of playable Forsaken or anything like that, but I think there needs to be an element of, of awareness here that comes out of this expansion. At least some Forsaken have to be okay with what's with with not reproducing. Yeah, with coming, not coming to terms with it, right? Yeah, there doesn't need to be more of us. We aren't supposed to exist in the first place. We were created by the plan of an evil monster that wanted to invade our world and destroy everything. We shouldn't exist. If we can turn our existence to his defeat and to the protection of the world as it's supposed to be, that's what we should do with the time we have. We don't have to be here anymore. And the thing is, we know light isn't life. Like there's an actual life domain. Yeah, there is a life, life domain. Death, then there's light and void. They're not the same thing. So it's not. It's surprising, but not contradictory that the light can be used to create undead. What's interesting is we haven't seen any void undead, have we? Not that I can think of, unless you count. Well, I mean, to be fair, we don't actually know what happens to void elves. That's true. Like they they could be essentially void meat puppet suits, but I mean, we don't know. Uh, yeah, that's we don't another. Know much that, about that. I was gonna say that's another thing that's probably gonna have some reckoning and fallout after Shadowlands. I think probably a little bit, but but at raise, any rate, you raised some very that, good points. I think ultimately, I'm not saying that all Forsaken should adopt that mindset, but I would like it if some did. At least if you were like, you know, why is it bad that we can't reproduce? We don't have to reproduce. Our heirs exist. We have the, There's people in this world who will come in and take over when we're gone. Mm -hmm. That's how life works. Mm -hmm. And the reason we exist is ultimately because this maniacal fiend has been plotting for infinite eons to destroy all reality and punch his way out of a prison he earned. I don't see why I should reward him. And that's, you know, other people be like, no, man, I don't care what it is. I, I exist and I want to keep existing. That's that's a fair in, in mindset. And I could see that, too. But I would definitely like to see at least some people saying, what? No, we don't need to make more Forsaken. Absolutely I, I not. I think at the heart of it, this is an opportunity for them to add some depth to the Forsaken, which I think is something they've been so sorely lacking for a long time. Uh, they got a little bit of it in Battle for Azeroth, but as a whole, their entire motivation has been either treachery or how do I get more of my people? And that's sort of, I don't want to say a shallow tone, but it's very, it's not like the other races, right? The other races are, they have more complex things that they deal with. Even the Tauren have, you know, struggles between their own individual clans. Look at everything that happened with the Grim Totem. Um, look at everything that's happened, you know, with all the troll clans. Uh, even the human kingdoms. They they have 
very specific ways that they deal with each other. Even when they're, even when they're unified uh, in we have to go save the day, they're still infighting. We've seen that over the years. Uh, but the Forsaken haven't had sort of that complexity in a while, uh, maybe ever. This is an opportunity to give them that sort of complexity. Uh, and I think Matt is hitting on something that I didn't really consider beforehand, which I really like, uh, which is the idea that there should maybe be more of those desolate council folks uh, that sort of take up that banner of our existence. Yes, maybe the second life is a blessing, but that's it. It's a second life. We don't need to exist forever. We go until we can't go anymore. Uh, and we don't need to make more of us. And we don't need to make more of us. We don't need to put other people through this this living hell that, that you know, we've all gone through. So there, there's definitely potential there for some really interesting identity storytelling for the Forsaken. Yeah, and there, there, and there could also be, absolutely, there could be people like Leonard Bartholomew who's dedicated himself to, like, you know, opposing the very thing that he is. And there could be, like, ones who are very much about, you know, it doesn't matter how I got here, I'm here. And I refuse to lie down and die. I'm not going to let myself or my people be wiped out. There's a lot of different ver variations on this, but that point is they could be variations on it. Um, and they're not the only race that needs like a little bit of in-depth looking at how they operate. Um, I really do think after this expansion, we need we need to see what is what does night elf culture look like now? Because in the past 30 years, they've done some like some amazing stuff has happened to them. Uh, they they tried to create, you know, they they basically lost their mortality had like a, a new world tree created that they tried to live on as a capital city had that destroyed and thousands of them killed. They're now in a position of like unsupported war against everybody. Like what are, what are they like as a culture? What's going on there? Mm -hmm. What's up with the blood elves right now? You know, the void elves, like, do you even have a culture? How many of you are there? Like there can't be that many of them. They're like, what less than 1% of less than 1% and less than 1% of their race. Like, you know, it's, there's a lot of stuff that's, that's in the game that could, that could be given that kind of approach. It's not just the Forsaken. It just feels like the Forsaken have gone the longest without moving past, you know, in a way, Sylvanas existed as a kind of development barrier. As yes. long as Sylvanas existed, you couldn't really explore these ideas because Sylvanas is always going to reject them. Yeah. And we saw that even in Before the Storm, right? Like, Everything that happened there when the council, anything that was against her singular vision, even if you are a Sylvanas fan person, it's one of those things where you have to admit, looking back on it, that everything had to fit her vision in some way or it just did not need to exist for her. Look at yeah, this. Imagine if they'd actually managed to pursue the idea of the forsaken being accepted to some level by some people in Stormwind, and you could actually have had family connections and people could have, you know, reconnected. Maybe Anderal would could have become a place where both of them lived in harmony, or there at could least have been a, a meeting a meeting plot. You know, yeah, just, just baby steps, but that was a possibility, and Sylvanas destroyed it. And this is again, I I honestly hope at the end of this expansion, Sylvanas isn't dead. I do want her to pay for what she's done. But I don't want her to just be gone. Um, and that's because I do think it would be interesting to see how she reacts to a world where the Forsaken do things that she doesn't think are right. But she can't stop them anymore. She can't prevent the world from going in directions she doesn't want. And she just has to deal with it. That would be interesting. There's a lot of possible interesting story here. 
the Forsaken are a very interesting group, and I definitely would like to see more different diverging. Now that they don't have the cult aspect to their leadership like they did, it would be really interesting to see them developing into factions and people with different perspectives. Because there's nothing stopping that now. There's no there's no cult of personality at, at the top. Yeah, and, and, and they've already been... And they've been they've been sort of establishing that too, right? Like when we start looking back specifically at Kalia and her interactions with, um, oh God, why can't I think of her name now? Stabby McStabber. Stabby McStabber. Uh, <laughs> uh, why can I seriously blanking on her name right now? The same uh, reason that I was having trouble earlier. Well, anyway, like their interactions, they're it's all about I don't want to leave. Lillian them. Boss, by the way. Thank you. Uh, so the interaction between Callie and Lillian, uh, there's a lot of talk about I'm not their leader, I'm not their voice, I'm not here to tell them what to do, I'm here to offer solace and advice when I can, but all their decisions are ultimately their own. And that's sort of playing right into what Matt's talking about, which is now they're getting a chance, the Forsaken are getting a chance to form an identity, to become something more than what they they are, what they were, what they've been, what they've been stagnated and put into stasis for, for ages at this point, decades. It's an interesting prospect because we can have a lot of growth around that. What does that mean in those areas? And then we've talked about this before where like, in particularly the human lands where the Forsaken have traditionally butted up against them. Uh, is it going to be a thing where they start trading. Is it going to be a thing where some of them are allowed to seek out their family members if they so choose to uh, and deal with the ramifications, the very real human uh, ramifications of those interactions? They're not just going to be a war machine. They're not just going to be an instrument of death and destruction. And they're not going to be slaves to the will of that cult of personality, which I always found fascinating because they were were raised and, and liberated from being slaves to the helm of domination, essentially, to, to this undead plague, to being mindless zombies, the scourge, to being another, you know, not really free to be whoever. And, you know, and we always question whether or not their, their will was their own, even in a non-magical sense, it wasn't. And, and you look at every step from the very, very beginning to now, they didn't really have a choice. They didn't really get a say in what they did, even if they were like a baker or somebody that was, you know, I want to, you know, tame rats all day. And Sylvanas needed them to go and, and wage war. They waged war. They were sent to the front lines. They were troops. They were tokens to be spent in whatever her vision was. And that was it. Nothing there. They weren't allowed to grow. They weren't allowed to develop their own anything, really. And you see that time and time and time again. And the ones that did strike out on their own, even slightly, we go and kill like they're in dungeons or they're elsewhere and they're brought to heal or they're crushed or they're attacked. So this is the I, I I'm really loving this idea. The more that the more that we're talking about it, the idea that the Forsaken can actually become something more, something that interacts with the world in a, in a way. This gives an opportunity for them to truly live a second life, which is fascinating because they haven't. 
they stay in crypts. They embrace everything about this death. Uh, you know, this existence is pain. Uh, everything is awful. But that's all they've known. They haven't been allowed to do anything else. It's produce plague. It's go and throw plague over here. Go and kill these people. Go and wage this war. Go and do my bidding here. Oh, these people are, these ones are, are reuniting and actually have feelings and, and want to be with their people. Well, I guess, uh, you know, just shoot them with arrows from the sky because that's what Solanus did. I'll quell any of them that want to have anything of their own. And the fact that they could possibly have that now with, I'm not even going to say leadership. I'm going to say guidance under Kalia. I really like that. And I think that's well. I think it's possible Kalia is not actually going to be doing that, which is also something interesting. Also true. Well, and what I mean by guidance, I mean like, hey, do you think I should go do this? And she goes, does it bring you joy? Like she becomes like that. Well, yeah, but my point is, we literally don't. We we know that she might not even really be that involved uh, based on what they're saying about Shadowlands. That's all I'm saying. Regardless, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens with them. But I think that's going to do it for today. I think we're right up off out of time. Uh, Blizzard Watch is made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash blizzardwatch. Your continued support means this podcast, site, and community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, a better chance at having your questions answered on our podcast or the queue, and an ads-free site experience. Uh, And again, if you want to catch up on some of the lore stuff, it, you can actually do that with Audible. Uh, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a 30-day free trial to give you the opportunity to check out the service. Uh, you can check out Before the Storm. You could check out Shadows Rising, which is another great primer for what's about to come in Shadowlands. You can download many of Blizzard's titles as well as thousands of others at blizzardwatch.com audible. So thank you very much for joining us. Uh, if you have any questions you want us to answer, please continue to send them in to us at podcast at blizzardwatch.com or send them to us on our Discord. We're more than happy to go through them as time allows. Uh, and as always, thank you very much, and we'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.